Lord, we do thank you for the fact that we can still um, gather in a way online. Thank you that we can um, be encouraged as your word is opened up. Thank you that we can sing at home. Um, thank you that uh, you are not bound by geography and the fact that we can't be together. We, we feel something of the pain of that, but we thank you for what we can do. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning, however old or young we are. We pray that your word would work in our hearts. We pray that your spirit um, would work mightily in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, as Matt was uh, talking to the kids um, in the kids' slot, if you can cast your mind back to autumn last year, um, you might remember we were going through Mark 1 to 8, um, and we had actually just reached that hinge bit in chapter 8. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter, Mark had been stacking up the evidence for us, trying to persuade us who Jesus was, trying to persuade us that he was God's son, God's king. And we saw he had come with power, he had come with authority, and he was dealing with all that was wrong with the world, dealing with sickness and sin and evil and chaos and all kinds of things. And yet more than that, we saw that he wasn't a sort of out there, aloof, standoffish king, but rather he, he was baptised, he identifies with his people. He's a king who came near, a king who was kind, a, a servant king, came to associate with people like us in, in our mess. And I guess in a time like this, for people like us, that's what we need, isn't it? We, we don't need a king who's not able to help. Or we don't need a king who's not willing to help. But we have one who is both able and willing. Um, even in lockdown, even sustaining us through these last few um, months. And, and Peter had just got something of that. He had just confessed Christ, as um, the title says um, in our NIVs. Just seen something of the identity of Jesus. Do you remember how it went? Um, Jesus asked them, he says, who do people say I am? And they replied, this is 8 verse 28. They replied, some say I'm John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets. And it's kind of all quite arm's length. And so Jesus turns up the heat and says, well, OK, how about you, though? How about you? What, who do you say I am? And Peter? Peter gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And suddenly at that point, verse 38, verse 30, the, the whole flavour of the gospel changes. Because now it's far less about who Jesus is. Now it's much more about, well, what does that mean? What, what's he come to do then? What does it mean for his people to follow him? And so immediately he begins to talk about the cross. And you're thinking about it, I guess this is the kind of thing that we expect at church on a Sunday, isn't it? This is what we talk about at church. We, this is what we sing about at church. But what about in normal life? How does what we think about in church and the kind of language and the sort of stuff we're thinking about this morning, how does that impact the rest of the week? Think about what you've got coming up this week. Think about the people that you will see this week. This week. Maybe friends, maybe schoolmates, maybe colleagues, maybe teammates, maybe family. Think about the places that you'll go this week. Maybe you'll go to school. Maybe you'll go to work. Maybe you'll go to the shops. Maybe you'll go inside and spend most of your time there. Maybe you'll head outside where you can. And think about where what you read here in Mark or, or in the Bible, 
will bring some kind of conflict or tension with those people that we're seeing in those places? Where will there be kind of sandpaper between what we read in the scriptures and what we hear in our world? It's interesting, isn't it? The tide is increasingly going out on our on our Christian roots as a society, as a culture. And we, we are increasingly, I think, at odds with everyone else. We're different. We've maybe faced some of that in recent weeks. That can be really hard. And yet our passage for this morning, I think, helps us when we get doubts that bubble up. When we think, is it worth it? Or, or when we think, how do we live as a Christian or who do we listen to? And I think there are two particular doubts that these verses will help us with. And the, the first one is, can we trust the words of Jesus? Can we trust his words? Maybe we can easily find or feel what Jesus says to be kind of outdated or primitive. Or, and I think these verses will help us that, with that. Help us to know that we can trust his words. Help us to hold on. The second one, the second doubt, I think, is can we trust his plan? Again, people increasingly enjoy painting the message of the cross as something outdated or stupid, stupid or weird or even dangerous. I think they always have. But I wonder if that's particularly a thing now. And these verses help us to see that God's plan in the cross is a good one. OK, so two doubts that these verses help us with. The first one, then, can we trust his words? There are so many voices out there, aren't there? So many conflicting messages. On social media, everyone has a voice now. Everyone has an opportunity to say something. And people are very quick to speak. There may not be a huge amount of wisdom or enough space for nuance or complexity, but people are certainly speaking. There are certainly voices to be heard or perhaps there's not even enough listening or seeking to understand or represent what someone's actually saying. And often there's quite a lot of emotion and, and heat, but not much light. But there are voices to be heard, so many of them. And yet with so many divergent voices, different takes on the world, people with different views, how do we know who to listen to when it comes to politics? when it comes to policing, when it comes to responses to COVID, when it comes to masks, when it comes to vaccines, whatever it might be, when it comes to our economy, when it comes to thinking about what life is about, how do we know who to listen to? Or, or on issues of, of gender or marriage or sexuality, how do we know who to listen to? Which voices do we listen to? Which ones do we find the most persuasive? Which voices matter and why? Who, whose voices do we trust? Who, whose voice do we build our lives on? Do we make decisions around? Because verse seven in our passage for this morning at a very simple level gives us our application from this section. It's very simple. Do you see it in verse seven? Have a look down. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's the conclusion. In one sense, we could stop our sermon there. But if that's where we get to, if that's the conclusion, how did we get there? Well, there's so much going on in this transfiguration, as it's sometimes called, this 
this meeting on top of the mountain, I wonder if the best way to dig into it is to ask some simple questions and to try and help us understand what's going on. And um, they are when, where, who and why questions. When, where, who and why. So let's have a look, think firstly about when. When did this happen? Well, Mark tells us after six days. Uh, six days after what? Well, six days, I take it after verse one, Jesus telling them that some will see the kingdom of God come with power. And it may just be that they get a sniff of that power here up on the mountain. Probably what he's talking about in verse one is pointing them further ahead to the resurrection. But I think they just get a small glimpse of that now. And why six days? It's interesting. If you know Mark's gospel, you know that Mark is not normally one for times and dates. If for Mark, everything is, is quick and immediately and 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 it's fast moving narrative, words rolling out of him, stories flowing one after another. And so for him to say six days, it's as if he's making a deliberate point. This is not how Mark normally speaks. It's interesting, Moses on Mount Sinai Back in the Exodus, he prepared for six days before going up onto the mountain. And I wonder if it's as if Mark wants us to pause and just to see how important this episode is. He says to us, he says, do you remember Moses up Mount Sinai? Do you remember the six day preparation? Do you remember him seeing the glory of the Lord as he passed by? Well, it's as if Mark is saying, do you know we're in similar territory here? So it's the seventh day that he's transfigured. It's like a foretaste of his resurrection glory of a new week of a new creation. We, we just get the veil pulled back for a moment. OK, so that's when. Where? Well, it's a mountain. And mountains in the Bible are important. Mountains are places of revelation. Key points in the story happen on mountains. When we, when we find ourselves in mountain territory in the scriptures, it's a, it's a heads up. It means something important is afoot. I take it Eden at the very beginning was a mountain. I think that's implied because you've got four rivers flowing from it. Rivers flow from high to low. I think it's a mountain. It, it all ends up on a mountain, Mount Zion. There's, there's Sinai when the law is given, or there's Golgotha where the gospel will end. Mountains are places of revelation. Mountains are, are places where God's voice is heard. And that's further highlighted in the Transfiguration by the different characters involved. So that was a quick one for where, mountains, but who? Well, who do we see up the mountain? Well, first off, we have Peter and James and John. And they are Jesus's three kind of closest friends. They are the inner circle, if you like. It's interesting. It is they who were with him as he raised the young girl in chapter five. Remember, he said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And it was Peter, James and John in the room. Or it's they who will be with him in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14. And and it's they who accompany him now here. It's interesting. It's these three who seem to be with him at times of, of his glory, at times of death and resurrection. And just as Moses, back in Exodus on the mountain, took three named followers up Sinai with him. So Jesus takes three disciples now. 
but it's not just them up there, is it? They're all alone, just the four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, John, and suddenly he's, he's transfigured and they're joined by Moses and Elijah, verse four. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And we say, what are they doing there? What's going on? Why them? Why do they matter? That's a good question. And I'm not sure anyone is really quite sure, if we're honest. There are all kinds of possibilities that are suggested as to why Elijah and Moses are up the mountain. If you listened in last week when Jim um, visited from um, the States, he noted that maybe it's Elijah and Moses because they had extraordinary experiences on Sinai with God. They met with God on the mountain, on Sinai or Horeb, as it's also called. It could be that. It, it could be that Elijah represents the prophets and Moses represents the law. And so maybe it's a way of saying that all of the scriptures have gone so far, that have gone so far, have all pointed towards Jesus. They've been waiting for Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment that they longed for. And Elijah has his prophet hat on and Moses has his law hat on. So all of the scriptures pointing to Jesus. It may be something to do with his death. Elijah, do you remember, Elijah didn't face death. He was taken up in the chariot in two kings. But there was also a Jewish tradition that says Moses didn't face death, although that's, to be honest, hard to square with a passage in Deuteronomy that says he did. Or it may be that they are both suffering servants, servants of the Lord who profoundly suffered, whose, whose faithfulness to God led them to hardship and difficulty, opposition. Or it may be a combination of a number of those things. Maybe it is the law and the prophets seen in suffering servants. And here is Jesus with Elijah and Moses about to begin his journey to the cross. So we've had a when, we've had a where, we've had a who. Now why? Why this? Well, I think it's this, in the midst of talk of his suffering, in the midst of talk of his death, in the midst of talk of him dying and being raised again. We've had it in chapter eight already, a year ago. We get it later in chapter nine, we'll get it in chapter 10 as well. But the transfiguration shows us that this suffering is not at odds with his glory. It's as if we're getting the sneaky peek of the end of the story, the unveiling, the almost apocalyptic, dazzling light seeing something of who Jesus really is. And, and just as Moses' face had to be veiled as he spent time talking to God, so here Jesus is the dazzling presence of God. But the cross is part of the plan. And Peter, as Peter, it's always him, isn't it, as he does, he, he blurts out something about putting up tents. Again, no one's quite sure why I'm I'm not even convinced Peter particularly knows. Maybe he's thinking of the kind of exodus and the wilderness as he sees Moses. Maybe he thinks there's some sort of military coup or just to enjoy their presence for a bit longer or just for something to say that, you know, the kind of person who doesn't cope well with silences. And so Peter blurts it out. But regardless, then comes the cloud and the voice. Again, take Moses on Sinai. The cloud comes, signifying God's presence, and there's a voice that speaks as well, and so it is here. 
and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Who do you listen to? Whose voice matters to you? Who do you trust? Well, the answer from the passage here is you trust the one whom the creator of the universe tells you to trust. You trust Jesus. And so rather than being tossed back and forth by all kinds of thinking, all kinds of ideas, by every wind of philosophy and movement, like a little, like a little rowing boat on the ever swirling stormy sea of modern opinion, rather than being crashed around against the rocks, not knowing what to think or who to listen to, the father says to us, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He is to be our anchor. In a world of confusion, in a world of conflicting voices, in a world of diverse opinion, in a world of Twitter, the father says, listen to Jesus, listen to my son. I guess our question is, though, why would we not listen to Jesus? I've been chewing over um, that question a bit this week. Um, Phil actually brought it out in Job for us to some extent. And the brilliant tactic of Satan has always been and always will be to, to cast doubt and shade as to what God is really like. Do you remember in the garden, he made them doubt whether God was good or that God wanted the best for them, or that God even knew what the best was for them. And isn't that still there today? Don't you still hear that today? Don't you hear the voices today? The voices that say, well, God wants to limit your fun. He wants to put you in your place and to crush you. And, and you know, if you'd only just follow your heart, if you'd only just be yourself and do what you want to do and whatever makes you feel good and you be the master of your own destiny, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be free. I don't listen to the Bible. No, no, no. Don't listen to Jesus anymore. He's, we've moved past that now. We've evolved past those archaic ideas, those antiquated and outdated thinking. That's the dark ages. Come on. seems to me in practical terms for many people we've we've cancelled Jesus he's been deplatformed in our minds he's just one of a number of voices and actually one that we don't take that seriously anymore and yet God the father says to us listen to my son listen to his words so first question then can we trust his words and the context, of course, in the transfiguration here in Mark 9 is particularly, I think, with can we trust his words about the cross, It's particularly to do with his message about the cross. There's a there's a wider um, there's a wider application for that, but it's particularly about the cross as well. The cross is so off the wall. The cross is so unexpected. The cross is so not what they were planning for. And for Peter, James and John to hear that God loves his son and that we ought to listen to him helps them and helps us as Jesus begins to talk more and more about the cross and set off on the journey to the cross. A similar thing happened. Do you remember at the start of the gospel at his baptism? There's a similar voice from heaven. Do you remember? 
God the Father said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And at that point, it was more to do with his identity. This part, in the second half of the gospel, it's more to do with his mission, about what he's come to do. And indeed, I think about what it means for us to follow that kind of a king. So second point then, can we trust his plan? Can we trust his plan in the cross? Let me read again. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him. So on the way down the mountain, we've got a few conversations and questions going on. Jesus starts it all off. Again, he's seeking to, to limit their reports of what's just happened until, he says, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He's, do you remember, he's keen to stop the truth about him spreading until the correct time has come. We saw that a number of times in the first half of the gospel. And so it is here again. But this idea of rising from the dead, that's confused them. Again, that their, their categories don't quite compute. What does rising from the dead mean, they think? Well, what's he going on about? Which is curious because he's already told them just a week beforehand, 8 verse 31, then the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be killed and then after three days rise again. For whatever reason, they're not on his page for now. They're confused. They still don't get it. They're also confused. They don't get it when it comes to Elijah either. It was how the gospel started. But again, we saw it last week with Jim Samra speaking to us from Malachi. Elijah was to be the one who would get everyone ready for when God's visits, for when the day of the Lord was to come. And John, John the Baptist, came baptising in the wilderness, looking and sounding and eating just like the great prophet Elijah. And yet John was beheaded. They took advantage of him, they killed him. And so it is for the Son of Man, for Jesus. He will be, like John, rejected. He will suffer. And even though we've just been given a glimpse of his glory, that glory must come via the cross. Even though we've been on top of the mountain and we've seen something of who he really is, that's not the experience for now. That will come after the end of the gospel when he's raised again. And this section of Mark's gospel it begins, I think, really to challenge us. Mark really turns up the heat slightly as to whether we're up for following this kind of a king. This kind of a king who suffers. This kind of a king who, who is rejected. And the disciples keep showing us they're a long way off. That they're a long way off being okay with that. They want the mountain. They want the glory. They want the excitement. They're not so sure about the valley. They're not so sure about the talk of suffering. They're not so sure about the hardships. I mean, just flick ahead a bit. 
they will want, 9 verse 28, they will want to have power over unclean spirits. Not power. They will want 9 verse 34 to be great. They will want 9 verse 38 to, to control others. They will want 10 verse 28 to get a reward for following him. They, they will want 10 verse 37 to sit at his side in his glory. That They want the mountaintop. They just don't get that following this kind of a king will mean to be willing to accept grief. That to share in the glory means we first share in his sufferings. They don't want the valley. They want to be on top of the mountain. That's not a message that's going to be particularly popular for us, is it? I, I don't even now as your heart reflects and deals with that, how we cope. We're all about the mountaintop, aren't we? We'd rather fast forward to the end of the story. We want something of the glory, the comfort, the adulation, the ease, the being liked and admired and seen. And all this talk of pouring ourselves out and being rejected and being scorned. We're not so sure about that. Thank you very much. We're not so keen on that part of the plan. We, we wonder if, if I pour myself out and I'm, I'm serving others, is that going to dehumanise me? What about me? What about self? And we love the praise of others and we love to be thought well of and we love comfort. But God's plan was always that the Son of Man would be rejected and would suffer. That the Lord would lay on Jesus our iniquity, that we might go free. That from death would come life, that from suffering would come glory, that from, from the valley would come the mountaintop. And if that's the journey of our king, then that's the journey of his people as well. It's the daily dying to self. It's the daily following him. It's, it's following him in all kinds of tiny decisions. All kinds of little instants and moments. And it's as we pour ourselves out like our king. That we understand what true life is. Can I urge you, if you're, if you're questioning whether he's worth it, if you're questioning whether it's worth it, if you feel that sort of constant magnetic pull of, of serving self, if you feel the pull of glory now and glory later, as to some extent we all do, listen to the Father who tells us to listen to his Son. And listen to his Son as he shows us what it means to follow him. And of course, as we, as we finish up, this, this mountaintop episode here, I think points us on to another one. This halfway through the gospel moment points us to the end of the gospel moment. And there we see his glory again, but not in the way we expect. And so you can, you can contrast this mountain with Golgotha, where we find the cross. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a voice from heaven declaring his identity. And yet at the end, there's a Roman centurion declaring his identity. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was private, just seen by a few at Golgotha, it will be public, seen by the world. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothes dazzled at Golgotha, he's got none. 
the Mount of Transfiguration, he was with Elijah and Moses, great prophets of old, blessed by God. And at Golgotha, he's flanked by two criminals, crucified, cursed by God. But, you know, it's through and only through Golgotha that his glory that we just get a glimpse of here will be truly seen. And so, friends, hold fast. Hold fast. We can trust his words. We must trust his words. Don't, don't cancel Jesus. In, in a sea of voices, value his above all the others. And we can trust his plan. Through suffering comes glory. It was true for him. It's true for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glimpse of the glory of Jesus on the mountain. We thank you that we just get a, a peek here of what is to come. And so we pray that you would help us to be a people who trust his words. With so many words out there, so many voices, so many truths and messages. Help us to lean on Jesus, to listen to him. And we pray that we might be those who trust his plan as well. That through suffering comes glory. That we would be prepared to go the way of the cross as we follow after our king. And where we feel that tension with self, the reality of our sin. Help us to be those who love and who pour ourselves out, knowing that we were, we were made to serve. We were made to love others. But we're sorry for when we get those two things wrong. We're sorry for when we don't listen or we don't trust. We're sorry for our selfishness. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.